Hello and welcome to the next episode of SciFlix on Tune FM. I'm the host, Dr. Marissa Betts from Geology and Paleontology at UNE, and SciFlix is a film night that we run once a month down at the Belgrave Cinema in Armidale, where we show science-themed films and have a researcher from the university speak to the science in that film um, with a, an audience Q&A after the film. The next film we've got is next week uh, on Thursday. Thursday, the 27th of April, 6pm start, we have Contagion um, and speaking with Contagion is UNE's Professor of Nursing, Professor Kim Usher and I have Kim here in the studio with me today. Thanks for joining me, Kim. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Um, I'm really looking forward to watching the film. It came out in 2011, so I haven't seen it for some time. Um, have you seen the film? Yes, I have, and uh, interestingly that it did come out some time ago, so I've seen it, I think, twice now, so once early on, and then more recently. Yes, more recently. (laughs) It seems to have become a lot more relevant in the last few years, that's for sure. Yes, and as a a result of the pandemic that we've experienced now with the COVID virus, um, the interest in the film has... um, you know, become exponential. So now um, people like Netflix and Amazon are reporting it's one of the top downloaded or requested films. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get to the film a little bit later in the chat. Um, At the beginning, I always like to get a sense of um, the speaker's past, how they got into the field that they're in and the kind of research that they do and their interests. So um, in researching you online, um, I did a bit of online stalking. Sorry, Kim. Um, (laughs) I can see that your career in nursing has been long and prestigious. You've been awarded the Member of the Order of Australia in 2017 and named in the top 10 nursing academics in Australia and New Zealand in 2018, in addition to a huge catalogue of publications and books and serving on editorial boards for journals and uh, national grants and so on. But how did you start off in nursing? Where did that journey start for you? Well, the journey started a long time ago, and um, I won't say exactly when because I am getting quite old now. I'm at the end of my career. But, uh, yeah, as a, as a young person, I um, went through school and finished year 12 and got a scholarship to go to university, actually, at the time, and um, that was in- interesting in itself. But um, in my holidays, um, some friends of mine suggested that we all go nursing at a psychiatric hospital and they were taking nurses or people to work as nurses there. And so I started there and uh, and that was the beginning of the story. I loved it so much I didn't leave. So I completed the course in um, mental health nursing, uh, stayed there for a while, went on to do general nursing. Then I went into training school for a while. And, uh, and then after that, I progressed to... Um, uh, working in different areas, but also uh, moving into academia. So back in those days, nursing was in um, Colleges of Advanced Education. Mm-hmm. So that was my first foray, and that was at uh, Newcastle. And then the College of Advanced Education there merged with the University of Newcastle. So then I worked at University of Newcastle. Is that where you're from, Newcastle area? Or? Yes, okay, yeah, cool. originally. Mm. Okay. But then I moved from there to James Cook University, and was I was up there for 21 years before I came here to UNE, where I actually studied uh, at some stage. I did a Bachelor of Arts majoring in psychology here. So. Oh, really? Mm. So you kind of were in industry for quite some time before you kind of made the move to 
taking that next level with the with the study and the research and so yes, on. Yeah. And so, what's that transition like between a practicing nurse and then an, and and working in academia as a nurse? I mean, I'm in geology. I have absolutely no idea what it's like in health and in mm. your field. So, yeah, I'd love it, to know. Yeah, it was hard to start with because I was such a practice driven person to mm-hmm. begin with, and I loved the work I was doing. Um, so what I did when I first started working um, in academia was I still worked a day a week in the practice area and um, my employer was happy to support that. So I used to do a Friday afternoon shift or a Saturday shift and, um, yeah, I enjoyed that. And I did that for many years actually. So, But uh, once I really started ramping up and going up the levels in academia, I couldn't sustain that any longer and keep up the research profile as well. Yeah, it's hard to have the balance for sure. But um, I do spend a lot of time working in community. And for me now, is my research is in community. So having that and being able to engage with community, particularly I work a lot in Aboriginal communities, that sort of still gives me that practice working with people. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's probably a drive for a lot of people in health and nursing mm. and so on. Um was it the drive to answer particular kinds of research questions that kind of pushed you towards more of the academic side of things? Uh, well, I don't know whether that was the drive to start with, but once I got into academia and started to hang around with researchers mm. and read research and mm-hmm. so forth, and once I completed my PhD, then from then on I, I, I know um, there was an expectation that we continued to do research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so uh, yeah, I just really pushed myself to keep going in that area until uh, of late. My main role is just doing research now and supervising high degree students. Yeah, fantastic. So you've been teaching at UNE for uh, some time as well, um, and I just wanted to get a sense because a lot of the people who listen to these chats are UNE students and potentially prospective students as well when they listen to the podcast later. Um, what are UNE nursing students like? What's a typical UNE nursing student and what's the um, course like? I imagine because we're at UNE, there's a lot of online aspects to, to that learning. Well, a typical um, nursing student, we have a lot of mature age students come through the nursing course here. We also have a lot of people who have started off as um, um, enrolled nurses and then they come on to do registered nurse course here at UNE. So upskilling and yeah, so on. Yeah, so we yeah. do have a quite a high number of mature age students. We have a lot of female students uh, and that sort of goes with the trend as well of nursing being a highly female profession. However, we do also get a lot of male students So, and we've had a lot of international students and um, and now that we've uh, got the campus down in Sydney, there's uh, hoping to attract international students there more so than here, um, apparently. But I think it's great to have international students in Armidale as well. So Absolutely. But, um, yeah, so the course is a lot of online, um, and so some students do choose to do most of it online. Mm-hmm. But we do have intensives, and they, there is still the on-campus course for students who want to come in and do everything uh, on campus. And do they end up doing um, like placements and things like that as a, so what's the, what's the sort of trajectory of a nursing student from university to their career? So the students do clinical placements in each semester of their three year course. Uh, and then uh, during those placements, that's when they're assessed on their practical skills, as well as in the clinical laboratories we have here. So even the students studying online, as distance students, they have to come in and do the um, on you know, have the do the laboratory experience. So they're assessed on their skills before they go out into clinical. 
Um, but then, you know, like from that, then students go off and apply for jobs and um, nurses are very highly sought after and even more so since COVID. So many of the, you know, most of them will get a job wherever they want a job, really, and um, they can go wherever they want. And as my career has shown, nursing, starting off as a nurse, uh, can take you anywhere. Like, I've worked all over the world. I've worked for the World Health Organization. I've worked in um, lots of lots of um, Pacific countries, Pacific Island countries. I've worked in um, low-income countries. I've worked in high-income countries. So, yeah. It'd be amazing, actually, to see that sort of the... Um, diversity um, of experiences that you would get as a nurse, but I guess the fundamental similarities of being human, I suppose, and caring for people. Yeah, and of course you see lots of the places where nurses are really challenged, they're in challenging environments, and um, how nurses adapt to to manage what they do with the limited resources in lower-income countries, for example. Um, And then, you know, because like places like, for example, Papua New Guinea, I've done a lot of work up there with... um, their education with their nursing course and so forth, uh, and also seeing the types of um, you know infrastructure in their hospitals compared to here, and the, similar to other countries. But I've also worked in um, areas of of disasters. So I've gone out and done um, training in like for for example, I went to after the big uh, earthquake in Sichuan. So I was over there for a number of weeks training um, first line responders in how to treat people's mental health because there were so many people had lost loved ones lost everything and all of a sudden there was this upsurge in need for mental health services and they couldn't meet their demand so we were training a hundred health workers a day in mental health first aid really so wow that does sound like a huge challenge something yeah. uh, that is completely outside my area I don't know how I I think does it take a special kind of person to be a good nurse do you think can every can anybody learn how to do it or do you think that there's yeah, some kind of innate capacity that some have oh look I think there's people others? who can't do it definitely mm. I'd say that and there's people who shouldn't do it <laughs> um, but yeah basically it, it's you've, you've got to really want to help human other human beings to, yeah. to be a good nurse, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as well about um, the your capacity as a, a supervisor and a mentor because I also read online when I was stalking you that you supervised something like 47 higher degree research students to completion. I don't know if that's the right number anymore. You may not even know there's so many. <laughs> yeah, Do you know over, over 50 now Goodness so, gracious. that I've completed, so... I remember sitting back when I was a very new PhD supervisor and sitting in a a room with someone who was the dean at the time and and they said they'd supervise 50 PhD students and I thought, that is such a large figure, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. that's what I think because I'm on my, I've got my very first PhD student at the moment, shout out to Steph. Um, And yeah, I wanted to sort of get a sense from you about how important it is to have that relationship with students um, to sort of help them get across the line. And in nursing, when it, it is kind of a, a hands-on sort of a subject, um, how important that relationship is to ensure success for students. Well, I've supervised people, not just nurses, though. I supervise a lot of different people, paramedics, doctors, nurses, Psychologists, so, um, but but yes, it's uh, the, the the supervision uh, relationship to me is pivotal, um, and trust is very important. And I always talk about that with the students as well, because to me, we're on a journey together, uh, and it's not just um, someone that you see every now and again. To me, if you take on that person, so once I make a decision to commit myself to that student, I commit myself, mm-hmm. and that means in every way. So I'm there for them in the ups and the downs, and 
whatever happens because it's all part of that journey. It's all yeah. impacts who you are in the end and what your outcome will be um, along the way and, and, and in, in the end as well. So um, I like to spend a lot of time with my students. I meet with them at least uh, individually, at least every second week. Mm-hmm. But I also have a Monday morning meeting with all of my students online oh, and it's cool. just an hour where we kind of get together and chat and talk yep. about what, what's happening for everyone and how they're progressing and whether there's any issues they want to talk about and and that's a really good group because I um, started off doing that just as a way of keeping involved with my students and, and in touch with them during COVID mm-hmm. because I did worry about the mental health of some of them given that they were stuck in little tiny rooms on their own for yeah. weeks on end. Um, but in the end, it's turned into what I call a little, um, pra- you know, a little group of scholars. So it's like a little practice group where everybody helps each other and, yep. and they share and they talk about new things they've read or found out about. And and um, some of the newer students, you know, they'll ask a question about like reviewing their literature, for example, and others will say, oh, you know, I can help you with that. Send me an email afterwards and we'll have a meeting and yeah, oh, so it's so really good. they share and, and share a lot of documents and it's just great. There's something so important about like crafting those opportunities for students to build a community with one another and there's so much good stuff that happens in those informal spaces as well. Mm. I think people think about, oh, your supervisor and the student, you have formal meetings and you talk about science and so on. But uh, it's a personal journey, isn't it? It it's is a, a very It's personal a personal journey. growth journey and it's a privilege to be on that journey with somebody. Yeah. It's a long time, three so, years. Three years is a long time. It's, yeah. And, and that's what I say. It is it is a long time and it's uh, longer than a lot of people stay married, for example. So. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And so, you know, as I say, it, it's trust is pivotal. You've got to be able to trust each other. You've got to be able to communicate. If there's no open communication... Um, then you're not going to succeed. And I treat my students as an equal. I don't like them to put me on a pedestal, although there's some from um, other countries. International students find it very hard to call you your first name, so some of them still call me prof, but but they are, you know, we're very friendly and, yeah, so... I, and I like to be part of their lives and so, you know, I get to meet their families and yeah. have them out to my place for dinner and... Yeah, awesome. And we have barbecues by the lake or something together that sort of thing so yeah my my supervisor was like that as well we'd have barbecues at his place and we'd do a lot of table tennis i remember (laughs) (laughs) um are any of your your student projects um about covid or having any covid related topics that people are doing any work on um we've i've got one student only who's doing work around that area Mm -hmm. um but mostly uh, but i do have uh, some of my students um, that when I put the grant in to New South Wales Health for the COVID grant, I put them on as associate investigators. So they've been involved in in that project, even though that's not pivotal uh-huh. to their PhD. But it's been it's good for them to be involved in yeah. submitting a grant and being part of a large grant as well. And what was that project? What's the project about? Can you say it was looking at um, preventive health checks for Indigenous people during COVID? And so. Um what does that mean, preventative health checks? Like a sort of well, there's certain health checks that were instigated by the government in Australia uh, as part of the um, closing the gap campaign, mm-hmm. and and the most common one is called a seven one five assessment. It's an annual health check for Aboriginal people from uh, once you know children up, um, and um, it's a very comprehensive assessment of all parts Mm -hmm. of the person's well-being um and it's the 715 assessments haven't been particularly um well taken up right across the board by aboriginal people which is a shame in many ways because it was meant to 
um, try and, you know, ensure that people got the correct care they needed and to detect issues that could become chronic illnesses earlier and mm. so forth. That's what preventive health's about. Yeah, okay. Um, but um, what we found is, um, and we suspected that during COVID it would drop drop off, and in fact that's exactly what happened. So even though in, even in the communities where there were uh, good rates of uptake of those assessments previous to COVID, they've dipped down quite significantly during COVID. And, and then there's been some particular dips in the times of the lockdowns. Now, you'd expect that because people had mm-hmm. difficulty getting to places. Yep. But overall, um, there's a drop down right across those years since COVID started. We've still had an escalation and it's still down. So that's a really important message for the government that we need to do something probably drastically about that to try and pick up that preventive health uh, for Aboriginal people. How do you encourage people to pick it up again? I guess, do you think it's and do you think it's about maybe like a habits form that people don't go and get these preventative health checks anymore and they don't see it as important because they're not doing it anymore? How, how do we encourage well, people we did, to do it We more? interviewed over 100, over 100 people as well as did the database study. Mm. Uh, and, and people have, have brought up some really important things about, you know, the going for their health checks. So since COVID, some people have found it more difficult to get access Mm -hmm. to health practitioners and that's happened to a lot of us you know you now go i want an appointment with a gp it can be a month before you can get in so they're saying sometimes they think oh that's don't worry about it then i won't do it and so that's one problem um is the backlog of you know health concerns and people with other health issues um but also some people are um you know that their remoteness or their Mm. lack of transport particularly older people. Mm-hmm. Um, but since COVID, you know, it has impacted people and they're less reluctant to get out and about a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's in some ways that's, I think, stopped people going. So yeah. And it's not just Aboriginal people. It's Everyone. People across the board have stopped having preventive health checks. Would telehealth be a way to well, deal with that a little bit? I'm it can, sure. but really to do those full comprehensive assessments, oh. you really need a person in the room right. with you. You need the time with them and, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. Oh. But one um, of the areas that we know has fallen off in, in um, preventive health care has been follow-up of mental health issues. Mm. So people would, you know, the mental health, sorry, the 715 assessment would detect that the person needs some mental health service mm-hmm. and they'd be referred on. And what we found during COVID, they're less likely to turn up for those appointments. So that can be really quite serious as well because the impact of COVID on the community, we found, you know, that there's been a huge surge in mental health need across the community since COVID. COVID and living through the last three years, like I don't know if we've even been able to predict some of the things that probably are still going to happen to our communities because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And those things that you're describing about like the, the nuanced effect in communities about being more reluctant to go for health checks and so on um, is maybe something that people haven't really thought about as much as, you know, uh, maybe long COVID perhaps, the physical sort of symptoms of being sick and so on. Um, are there any other kinds of, can you make any more predictions about what our communities might be experiencing related to COVID in the future? I don't know about any, uh, predictions, but I think that the mental health will be an ongoing thing for quite some time. So it's going to take a long time to get over that. Mm. There are people who have um, impacts from COVID. So they you know, they have poorer lung capacity than they had before having COVID. So that's going to be people with ongoing like chronic lung mm-hmm. diseases now that we have to deal with in, in the community. But one of the other things, as well as the mental health, is the is the rising rate across the times of COVID of domestic violence. Oh. 
It's been quite significant. And so we know we know that in a number of ways, not just in reported cases or police reports and so forth, but also calls to helplines. And it's not just for uh, violence between um, adults, it's also child-related violence. So we found that we know that the calls to child helplines have risen dramatically across COVID. Wow. Um, again, that's something I would never have really um, suspected, you mm. know, but I guess and now that you mention it, it makes a lot of sense that people are at home a lot, probably all up in each other's space a lot and no way to kind of get away perhaps mm. as well. Um, I wanted to ask, do you think, and you sort of mentioned this before, do you think COVID has had an impact on how many people come and take up nursing um, to study and as a career? I, I kind of got this sense during COVID that nurses, because they were on the front line of the pandemic, they were in the media branded as heroes and um, they did such incredible work, long hours, very physically taxing and so on. Do you think that that's encouraged more people to take up nursing or do you think it's discouraged people from taking up nursing because it looked kind of hard, I have to say? <laughs> it is hard and, and, and nurses don't want to be seen as heroes as such. To them, they're doing their job, you know, that's what right. they want to think they're doing their job. But there's been a lot of untoward impact on nurses during COVID. Like some nurses that were working were stigmatised by people in the community uh, and given a really hard time um for um, because you know people would see them as you know bringing disease home or in the mm. community, so they yep. were often abused and given uh, you know really difficult times by community members. So for some nurses, it's been it's been very difficult. But and and then the requirements of work during COVID and since COVID has been very difficult. So for nurses now, we know they're working very long hours. They're often working short-staffed, you know, because mm. the ramp-up of healthcare that's been needed across the community. So it's made a, a big impact on on nurses, and it has meant that some people have chosen to leave nursing, which makes the situation even worse for those who remain behind. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, I think uh, you know, often what happens is once health gets in the media. Uh, and nursing in particular, then we used to get an influx of students coming into nursing. But we've seen a drop off since oh, COVID. Oh, really? Mm. So I think the stories of, you know, the long hours, the yeah. hard conditions, um, the poor pay rates that people are claiming now have turned some people and think they think, oh, I could maybe do something better or different. Wow, that's really so interesting. So some of the, the, the issues now the government are trying to address and the nurses are trying to force them to is around mm. better recognition, yep. better working conditions, uh, better patient-nurse ratios. It's not Nurses aren't the ones asking for money. They're asking for better working conditions, better patient-to-nurse ratios mm -hmm. than what we have at present because yep. that's what makes nursing difficult. Yeah, that's right. It makes it easier to do your work properly if you've not, you're not yeah. overrun, obviously. Because otherwise you end up with nurses who go home at the end of the day feeling really bad about themselves because they haven't been able to offer the care that they know they should and they want to give their patients. That would be heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, unfortunately. Let's talk about the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the film... Um, obviously, things like COVID, the pandemic, um, and nurses, of course, are um, at the forefront of themes in the film. But it was released in 2011. So that's like almost a decade before anyone had ever heard of COVID. But the film is so eerily familiar to people who have lived over the last three years or so. Um, and like you said, it's had a resurgence in popularity precisely because we've had COVID. Um, and 
in the film, rather than, I mean, it's a medical thriller, right? You know, and in a lot of medical thrillers, you'd think maybe they would go for something really gruesome like Ebola. Um, but they've gone with the flu-like virus, which is exactly what we've seen. Why is something like a flu virus... Uh, like the coronavirus, so much worse and so much um, more impactful in terms of a pandemic than something like Ebola, which would probably have looked more gruesome and exciting on the screen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, they chose the right thing because to, to have a, a pandemic like this across the, the world, um, you need a virus that's very easily transmittable between people. And of course, flu viruses are, they're one of the most easily transmittable because as soon as we have the virus active in our body, um, it comes, if we sneeze or cough or even talk, the droplets can come out. And then if we've touched our face and then we touch a glass or a table, then the virus can live there for some time before mm-hmm. it dies off. Whereas with um, viruses like Ebola, you have to actually come in contact with the bodily fluids of a person, the same as like HIV, oh. to actually contract it. So it's not, even though it's a very deadly virus, Ebola, it's not as easily um passed from one human to another. Right. And uh, it seems like because it's so effective at killing the host, I suppose, that it might not give people That's a cha- chance to, to get in touch it. with the, the bodily fluids and yes, so on. Yeah, that, that is correct as well. So because they're not able, they're so sick, they're not able to get out and right. share it around. That's kind of a relief, I have to say. Yes. Yeah, Ebola looks terrible. <laughs> it does, but then you've got to realise that even the ordinary flu kills a lot of people every <gasps> That's year. That's true, of course, yeah. Every and, year and, yes. and in, impacts millions, but kills a lot of people every year so yeah well that's a good point that you make like the you know on a, on a film for example Ebola would probably look scarier but the actual impacts of something like a coronavirus are so much more so much huger yeah. um, to the and world. that's why it was so easily transmitted yeah. you know from person to person region to region country to country yeah exactly mm. in the film they talk about um, they do a pretty good job, I think, of explaining some of those um, the details that people talk about the, regarding the um, ha- the basics of how epidemics spread and become pandemics, and um, they call it the R naught number, um, which is. Can you explain the R naught? That's like a it's like patient zero or something. Or yeah, so the R naught is just a mathematical epidemiological term that explains or predicts um, the rate of transmission from one human to another. So the more people that if I became uh, positive with a virus, then then um, then it measures how many people that they're predicting I will affect. Oh, I see. So if I if I'm going to affect three people, um, that's quite uh, quite high if you think about it. Because if I infect three, three infect three, yeah. they infect. It goes on. Yep. It's rapidly spreading. Um, so that's what the R naught is. So, for example, as an example, um, measles is one of the most um, highly infectious conditions that we can get, and uh, it has an R naught of about um, between twelve and fifteen, depending Goodness on who you me. listen to. So it's very contagious. So um, you know the prediction for COVID's been is is been around the two to three, and some even higher, but. Uh, they're always trying to get the R naught back to one. That's yep. that's when you feel feel you you're starting to get uh, control. I see. If you can get the R naught back to one, so that means you've been able to contain it by things like uh, mask wearing, you know, dis- social distancing, not being allowed to mix in large groups anymore. Mm-hmm. So 
that's that they those strategies are to try and bring the virus back to an R one. R one. Do um, vaccines um, are part of that sort of package of bringing it back to the R one? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So once you've got the vaccines developed, which do take some time. Yeah. And as you know, the virus keeps mutating, which yeah, is that's a very right. clever thing about it. <laughs> and so they have to keep working on the vaccines all the time. But that's your ultimate strategy: is the vaccine to then help reduce. But in the meantime, before you've got vaccines. The you can do all those other basic things. Yep. Primary health strategy is to you know isolate, yep. cover people up, avoid touching people. Yep. Do, yeah, hand no, sanitizer, yeah. all those things we've gotten used to. <laughs> That's right. That, that our word will always be different because of that now. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think the film also did a really um, incredible job of predicting the mass panic um, mm. associated with global pandemics. I'm having flashbacks now of going to the supermarket um, and trying to find toilet paper. Um, I don't know if in the film that there's a toilet paper shortage, but I'm sure there was something like that. Um, and also the the opportunistic fraudsters, I guess, that mm. um, kind of start to spread in these sorts of circumstances. But I don't think it really predicted the anti-vax movement, which I think is kind of, was... Um, pre-COVID, it was around pre-COVID, but certainly during COVID it really sort of ramped up a lot. Um, the film actually celebrates the developer of the, the vaccine as a kind of hero in the film. Um, do you have a particular take on the anti-vax movement that kind of sprouted during COVID? Well, well I think you've mentioned a few things there that are important, you know, about, about the film. And so the film does do a, a pretty good job of, of portraying the panic, which is amazing. And, and so we saw it, you know, even here in small town like Armadale, yeah. well, my people were obsessed with toilet paper. I still cannot understand <laughs> because the virus doesn't cause diarrhoea. And if it, if it was the virus that caused diarrhoea, you might think, yes, we're sure. going to need a lot of toilet yeah. paper. But the way people were running out with, with whole trolley loads of toilet paper and then followed by Panadol, which, you know, was at least that had some reason to it. But, but when we have to start limiting things like toilet paper and uh, tissues and yeah, it was it was it was weird, but um, that that panic is something that does happen, and and people that's when you see that sort of basic instincts of people mm-hmm. where they'll fight each other to get yeah. that last roll of toilet paper. Um, it really changes us as human beings. Yeah. Something like that. That that the nature of the pandemic put people into such shock states of shock. Yeah. But the anti-vax movement, yes, they, it's not part of the film really. I mean, they've got the conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. and I guess the vax anti-vaxers kind of hang off that conspiracy network yeah. to some degree, I would I would suspect. But um, I don't have a – I mean, myself, I, 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 vac- I was vaccinated as soon as it was possible and I think it's the best thing for everybody. But, you know, there are people out there who still believe that the vaccine's been developed by the government – to infiltrate our bodies with different things that'll kill us off at a certain rate so that um, it'll get rid of some of the population. And that's their opinion. So I I always like to – I've got my opinion and I like to respect that of others. So Yeah. Is it just a, a matter of like – I mean, sure, we can kind of live and let live, but as long as enough people in the community are vaccinated, then mm. the R0 is fine and, you know, we can kind of carry on as normal. Is that the situation? Yeah, I think so. Although what we found um, in, in, in some areas areas of course you know we had um we we had uh, pretty you know good coverage of, of, of vaccines vaccines in the past for things like measles and diphtheria and that and then we're starting to find now that because of parents who are against mm. vaccination we've started to get 
some of those diseases back in the community. Oh, yes, I've seen that in the news. There's mm. sort of resurg- there's some resurgence in schools yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like if, if people saw children in particular, if you've, if you've ever had to care for a child in a hospital with diphtheria, you would, you would not want that for your child. And, um, and, and certainly the not getting measles, and, and it happened to me when I was young, but um, it's not just uh, some children get measles and, it, you know, it's, it's fine. Other children get measles and then they can end up with all sorts of other complications yeah. as a result of it and actually die. And, um, you know, I know what that was like. My mother lost her brother that way so oh, very as sad. very young. So if a child has some other sort of illness, it can be quite, mm-hmm. you know, compounding for them. So, uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate and anti-vaxxers have, have really... Um, you know, ramped up stories about things like autism being caused by vaccines and so mm-hmm. forth. There's really no proof for that, but um, they think they have the evidence for yeah. it. So Probably uh, social media has made it easier for mm. people to spread these kinds of views as well. Prior to social media, they would be quite yeah. isolated communities, I imagine. Yes, correct. And, and social media has brought a, a lot of things to the forefront and, and made it easier for a lot of, you know, conspiracy theorists to get their word out there and to be noticed. And um, of course, we'll notice that there's kind of really the, the, the position in the film is like the one main um, um, conspiracy theorist who gets quite a lot of airplay, really. But um, his position is different to what conspiracy theorists normally are because he's trying to make money for himself. Conspiracy right. theorists aren't normally motivated for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Kim, for this chat. And I'm really looking forward to the film next week. And I'm sure that we'll come up with, and the audience will come up with all sorts of um, more exciting questions and important questions to ask you um, related on the film. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye.